It's great to be uh, back with you sooner than uh, I was expecting to be. I was only here a couple of weeks ago, but uh, Josh, uh, our student minister, not this Josh, uh, is a bit crook today and was meant to be preaching, so I've been called in as the substitute. So uh, be kind to the substitute teacher. Uh, but uh, one thing you will find if you open up your, uh, your weekly snack is that that outline is not my outline, so that's uh, Josh's outline. I was having my coffee at 7.30 when I got a text from this Josh to say, come and preach for us. So uh, we didn't have time to reprint those, but uh, the headings will come up on the, on the screen, I'm sure. Uh, but I'll pray now. Our Heavenly Father, we, uh, we pray for Josh this morning, who's uh, unwell. We pray that you will uh, grant him uh, a quick recovery from the, the tummy upset that he's got. And uh, we pray that he uh, might even be able to come and preach for our afternoon service this afternoon. Uh, but in the meantime, Father, we pray now that you'll help us to set aside the things that might distract us so we concentrate on understanding your word uh, and help me to preach it clearly, faithfully uh, and in a way that shows how we are to respond in faith and repentance. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my uh, favourite things is uh, when I hear people from outside our church say how struck they are by the way they see people in the church caring for each other. Uh, and you would be amazed how many times I have those conversations. Uh, people, you know, who, who are on the fringe of church, they might sort of be bringing their kids along to youth group or bringing their kids along to, to Kids Plus and so just sort of on the edges of the church community or people who've just come for a short time to church uh, and they say what strikes them is the way they see people loving one another, the way they see people caring for one another. Uh, when you're in it, you sometimes can't see it. It's one of those things within the church you don't realise how special the church is until you're outside the church. Uh, it's, it's interesting like that, we're sometimes better at finding faults. But for people who don't know Jesus, the fellowship of a good church is actually quite incredible to them. Uh, even just the little things they see, of people sharing one another's lives, people cooking one another a meal when they're unwell or when they've had a baby or whatever it is, just people giving someone else a call when they're not around. Uh, most people in our world do not have that. Our world is not a loving place. I sometimes think Christians don't, don't get how lonely and disconnected most non-Christians are. We, we take it this, this for granted. But, but when you, you, most people don't have anyone in their home other than family members. Uh, they're just disconnected to the world. Uh, so I love it when people see that and they comment on it and you'd be amazed how often it happens. Now when they do, I always then try and say, well, you can be a part of that. Don't just look in and say, wouldn't that be great? You, you can be a part of that. You can come and join in that. And the reason people are like that is they know Jesus. So you can come to know Jesus too. Uh, but of course, those are the great stories. Those are the good stories. There are also times when people are not as positive about the church. Uh, and the sad comments are when once in a while you're talking to someone and uh, they've been hurt by a Christian or they've had a, a bad experience of church sometimes even our church, and that is now stopping them hearing about Jesus. Uh, and often the issue for those people, real or perceived, is hypocrisy. It, it's the real or perceived, because sometimes it's not actual, sometimes it's just their perception, but sometimes it's real, is the hypocrisy, and they've been put off by the way a Christian ha has failed to live up to what they claimed. Uh, now at that point, of course, you want to try and gently say, I am sorry, you know, Christians will let you down because we're sinners too, we'll, we'll get things wrong and you want to say, look to Jesus, he's the only true non-hypocrite. 
but even so, sometimes people's views are hard to change and it's just this impediment to them ever coming and hearing the gospel. That, that is the reality though, isn't it? The, the church family on the one hand can be a wonderful witness to Christ, the most beautiful thing, but it can also be a terrible witness to Jesus. That's just the reality. Sometimes people though think that's a recent phenomenon, sometimes people think that's a 21st century reality, it has been the reality of the church from the very beginning and that's what we see in today's passage in Acts, you see the beauty of the church at its best in the first part of our story but then you see the sadness of Christians at our worst in the second part. So we're going to start with the good side, so come with me, the beauty of the church at its best should come up on the screen, the the next one, the beauty of the church at its best from chapter 4. Now, in many ways, this passage sits alongside the description we saw of the early church a few weeks ago at the end of chapter 2. So remember when you saw the Pentecost story, I wasn't here with you, but I think the sermon focused on on Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit and probably just only quickly mentioned from verse 42 at the end, 41 at the end of chapter 2. So jump back now, turn back in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2 from verse 41, and we're not going to read it all, I just want to read out verses 41 and 42, look with me, it says, so those who accepted his message were baptised and that day about 3,000 people were added to them, that's some evangelistic mission, isn't it? And then it says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. I think those verses are just a wonderful picture, especially verse 42, of what happens when people get the gospel, when people become Christians. Firstly, we become part of this fellowship of believers, we become part of this church family and then together with our new family, with our brothers and sisters in Christ, what are the things they devoted themselves to? It says the apostles' teaching, for us that's studying the Scriptures, they had the apostles there firsthand, we have the New Testament, they devoted themselves to prayer at the end there, praying for one another, and praying for the world, but they were also devoted to the fellowship, that is, they were devoted to meeting together, Uh, they shared their lives, they they shared meals together, they opened their their homes to one another. Now, passages like this one are not meant to be a list of rules for church, I want you to walk away from today and say, I failed because I haven't had someone in my home every day this week, What, what they are is a picture of what people gripped by the gospel are like, They're a picture of what people who've come to know Jesus are like and it won't look exactly the same for us, we've got to bring it forward into our situation. We don't live in Jerusalem where where everyone's time was set by the religious calendar, where every day you are free to go to the temple in the morning and the afternoon, you know, our society doesn't work like that, Uh, we can't meet daily like they could but even so, we can be devoted to the fellowship we can make meeting with our brothers and, Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ and sharing our lives together the centre of our lives rather than fitting it in around other things. We can open our homes to one another. Uh, I know I'm like a broken record on this but uh, I am convinced that far too many modern Christians value the church far too little. We've grown this individualistic faith that's just not biblical Uh, And when I'm talking about the church, I'm not talking about the denomination, I don't care how much you value denominations and that sort of thing, I mean the gathered assembly of the church family where God has placed us. People gripped by the gospel are devoted to the fellowship. But now turn back to chapter 4, so flick back to our passage today, chapter 4, because this next part of the early church 
picture of the early church focuses on the two very special parts of that devotion, unity and generosity. So look from verse 32. It says, Now the large group of those who believed were of one heart and mind, and no one said that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. I love that little phrase there, they were of one heart and mind. Isn't that great? It's a picture that they were united in their knowledge and love of Jesus. Uh, and so they didn't let other things divide them. I could actually stop and, and preach for an hour. I won't do that, don't worry. Just, just this way, I just preach on that phrase because, and, and how we, we seek to be unified in our faith, not divisive and those sort of things. I won't do that though because the passage focuses especially on how that showed itself then in generosity. So look there again. It said, no one said that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. Then look down at verse 34. It says, for there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed for each person's basic needs. Now at first read, as you look at that, look down, look at it with me, there's 34 and 35, and some people go in this direction. It, it sounds like a form of communism. Eva was sharing before, growing up in Czechoslovakia, it sounds like she's gone back to Czechoslovakia when she's joined, joined the church. Uh, you know, no one owns everything, everyone sells everything, and, and the apostles decide who, who gets what. Uh, it clearly wasn't that because people kept owning houses. And we're going to see that in Acts because wherever they went, where did they meet? in people's houses. So, so it wasn't that. And in the next part that we read, Peter says to Ananias, you didn't have to sell your house. Who told you you had to sell your house? So that wasn't, it wasn't like the early church was a hippie commune. You, you know, that's, that's not what it was. But what it was, was a community of radical love and generosity. The key line, I think, is there in verse 32. Look at verse 32. No one said that any of his possessions was his own. See, our world says to us, that's your money. Our world says to us, that's your house, that's your car, you've worked for it. But, but the Christian appreciates that it's all a gift of God. We hang lightly to the things of this world. What does Jesus say? Where are our treasures? Not in this world, our treasure is in heaven. And so we use these things that God has given us for His service and especially for the good of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Our grip as Christians should be very loose on the things of this world. Our idea of ownership should be very loose. Uh, all that I have is actually for the benefit of God and His people. Now, at this very early moment in the book of Acts, the generosity was focused on meeting each other's physical needs. As the church grew and became more aware of the mission, as you read the rest of the New Testament, that spirit of generosity spreads out to other things, most particularly supporting the spread of the gospel, most particularly supporting gospel work, supporting other churches in need, but all with that same spirit of generosity. The point is, people gripped by the gospel are radically generous. It's funny, I have heard people teach this passage many, many times and they immediately jump to explaining how we are not called to sell our house and give away our money. And in fact, I even did it this morning, if you're listening. And that is right, but I think it's like we're scared that, that we might be as full-on as these early Christians. I think we, we, we sort of get scared that we might be as radically generous as, as these early Christians. Yes, this is not a command, but we are called to have exactly the same spirit of generosity. 
So we need to ask, how do I use my house? Is it your castle or is it open to your brothers and sisters to benefit from your hospitality? I think it's a useful sort of diagnostic question to ask, how many people from my church family have I had into my home in the last month, in the last two months, in the last three months? Christians share their homes with one another. In your giving, how do you work out how to be generous? There's an old joke that the last part of a Christian to be converted is their hip pocket. Uh, But it's not actually a joke. Money is the clearest sign into our heart. Just do do an exercise and read through one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, and look at just how many times, it's almost every time when Jesus wants to talk about true conversion, true discipleship, he uses the example of money and possessions. Every time. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. No person can worship both God and money. So we need to ask, do I cling to my money? Do I cling to my wealth? Do I give from what's left over? Or does my love for Jesus drive me to be radically generous? I still remember when uh, I first finished uni and got a proper job. So I wasn't driving a delivery van, you know, four hours a week or six hours a week I was to get through uni. But I got a job in a professional firm and I was earning good money. Uh, And I still remember, now you may question whether this brother should have been looking at what I put in the plate, but set that aside, I still remember an older Christian brother saw me every time the plate went around, pulling out my wallet and getting a 20 or a 50 and throwing it in the plate. And he just took me aside gently and he said, Phil, you're earning a proper income now. He said, you've got to prayerfully think about what it looks like to be generous when you're earning a proper... Throwing a 20 or a 50 in the plate is not generous if you're working as a lawyer in the city. It's, you see, now, as again, you may question whether he should have looked at what I put in the plate and, uh, and that, but that's another question and we don't pass the plate around here, we have a box in the, in the foyer or electronic giving, but I am so thankful for that older Christian brother because he actually challenged me to be serious about generosity. Remember that these first Christians were Jews, under the law they tithed, they gave 10%, but do you see how knowing Jesus has just sort of taken them beyond that? They didn't say, oh great, Jesus died for me, I'm not under the law anymore, now I can go down to 5%, I can go down to 2%, I can go down to 1%. That's what a Pharisee does, not someone who knows the love of Jesus. They said, we've come to know Jesus, all I own is a gift of God, how can I use it for His glory? It's always hard for me to talk on this topic because I am paid through the generosity of church members. It's always hard for Josh to talk on this topic because he is paid through the generosity of church members. But as your pastors, we have to because it's actually a key part of your godliness. So can I encourage you to consider your heart in this matter? Do not let God's Word pass you by unmoved. Don't sit there as a cynic saying, all the church wants is my money. You know, what nonsense. Jesus wants your whole life. Christians are radically generous. If you want help in being faithful with your money and possessions in the foyer always are these giving brochures which is basically just a a bible study on a on a biblical attitude to generosity it's not just the church bank account details it's meant to be a a help for people to consider that and it's designed to help you work out how to be godly in this area it's very hard to get examples of generosity because godly people almost by definition don't shout from the rooftops what they're giving Uh, But here in this passage, we're given a wonderful, specific example of generosity in Barnabas. Come with me, look at verse 36. It says, Joseph, a Levite and a Cypriot by birth, the one the apostles called Barnabas, 
which is translated son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas actually goes on to become a major figure in the book of Acts and uh, church history. He's a, a missionary alongside Paul. But what you see here is from the very beginning, he was a man worth following because he was someone with that spirit of generosity that comes from knowing Jesus. Well, there's the church at its best. And sometimes people read these descriptions and they have a romantic idea of the early church. Uh, They say, why can't my church today be like that? Uh, To that person, I do feel like saying, well, if you want to sell your house and put the money in the box there in the foyer, that that is more than fine by me and you, you do a good job of being like the early church. It's funny how sometimes we want other people to be like that rather than us be like that. But we're sometimes quick... Besides that, Acts shows us we're sometimes quick to jump from the book of Acts to us and and, and have this romantic, positive picture. But Acts shows us that the church had its issues from the very beginning, especially, sadly, the issue of hypocrisy. So come with me to Christians at their worst, chapter 5 from verse 1. So after these wonderful opening chapters, the church has been growing by thousands almost overnight and these wonderful pictures of the early church. This story of Ananias and Sapphira just hits you between the eyes. It totally stands out, doesn't it? And I think it's intentionally put straight after the wonderful example of Barnabas to sort of jar even more, to stand out even more. So what happened? Look from verse 1, it tells us there, this man and his wife, they were in on it together. There wasn't like one or the other or both in it. They sold their field, but they kept a portion of the money for themselves. They came and they laid the proceeds at the apostles' feet, just like Barnabas but they kept a bit on the side. Now, what's wrong with that? Well, Peter makes the point in verse 4, look down there, he says, wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? See, the problem wasn't that they kept some for themselves. The problem seems to have been they lied about it. Look from verse 3. It says, then Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds from the field? And then, why is it you planned this thing in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. The problem was that Ananias had made a commitment to God to give it all. And he didn't just renege on that commitment, he then lied about it. He was a hypocrite. He wanted the kudos, he, he wanted the credit. I think, he thought, look at Barnabas, they've given him a special nickname, I'd like a special nickname too. I'd like the apostles to think I'm a son of encouragement too. Maybe they'll call me double Barnabas or something. Because, you know, he wanted that. He wanted people to think I'm like Barnabas when actually he wasn't like Barnabas. And so God strikes Ananias down. He was lying to the church and he was lying to God. And so God strikes him down. And that is what happened here. God judges him. This is fairly confronting. And to prove the point of their lying and hypocrisy, we're told about his wife who comes in three hours later and Peter asks her, he says, is this what you received? It's it's sort of like the leading question in the courtroom drama, you know, is this what you received for the field? Now at that point, she has the chance to tell the truth. She has the chance to come clean. She could have said, actually, no, we changed our mind. We decided we're only going to give 80% or 60% or 50%, whatever it was. She doesn't do that. She doubles down. She says, yes, too right. Aren't we great? We sons of encouragement and daughter of encouragement. We gave you all the money. And so she dies immediately, just like her husband. 
It's a shocking moment, isn't it? Lots of people struggle with this. How could God do this? One uh, commentator I read said, it can't be God, it must have been Peter that killed them. I think, poor old Peter. (laughs) No, it's not Peter. It's a direct act of God here. Uh, But ask yourself, why do we struggle with this? I think we only struggle with it because we don't really grasp the seriousness of sin. I think we struggle with it because we don't believe Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. You see, we don't really believe that all sin is an affront to God and worthy of His judgment. See, the actual question to ask here is not, why did God do this to Ananias and Sapphira? The right question to ask is, why did He only do it to Ananias and Sapphira? Why hasn't He done it to every hypocrite in the Christian church like me? Or, truth be told, probably you. So let's think about it. Why does God act so decisively against this sin at this point in the growth of His church? There's a couple of reasons I think, I'm only going to share a couple, you might think of some more over morning tea. The first is, I think, it seems that from the very beginning, it should come up on the screen, there we go, from the very beginning, God wanted His people to understand the gravity of sin and especially the seriousness of Christian hypocrisy. You are saved by grace, not by works, so that no one can boast. We are saved by the death of Jesus that pays for our sin. But we are saved to live for God. We are saved not to continue on in the sin that that, that characterised us before we knew Jesus, but to put off sin and become more like our Heavenly Father. And this is here as a warning to us not to tolerate sin in our lives and especially not to be hypocrites who puff ourselves up and pretend we're righteous when actually our hearts are hard. It's interesting, in these wonderful descriptions of the early church in Acts that we've looked at, both times there's a funny word that jumps out. I just wonder if it jarred with you in the reading. It's funny because we don't think of it as a good thing. Back in chapter 2, you can go read it again later on, don't go back there now, but back in chapter 2 where I started, amidst all the talk of praising God and sharing, it then says, fear came over everyone. We don't think of that as a positive thing, fear came over everyone. And the same thing happens after this incident. Look at verse 11. It says, Then great fear came on the whole church and on all who heard these things. See, joy and praise are the marks of the Christian church. How could they not be, if you know the wonder of God's love for us in Christ? But healthy fear of the Lord is also a mark of the Christian and the church. God is loving and merciful. God is gracious and kind. God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, but God is not to be trifled with. God is not to be mocked. God is not to be taken for granted. This is why we confess our sin to God rather than hide it. I hope a regular part of your prayer life is is before God owning your sin and, and confessing it to Him and thanking Him for the forgiveness you have in Christ. It's a regular part of what we do here at church together. We confess our sin and thank Him for our forgiveness in Christ. God knows about your sin anyway. God wants to forgive us. Why would we hide our sin from Him? Beware the sin of hypocrisy. And I'm not talking at this point about the struggle we all have with sin. I'm not talking about the normal Christian life where we sometimes fail but confess it to God and thank Him for the forgiveness we have in Christ. I'm talking about the sin of hypocrisy. 
Beware if you are putting on a show of godliness. Beware if you wear a mask. Beware if you are putting on a show when the truth of your heart is far from the show. God hates the hypocrisy of the person who puts on a show of generosity but is actually living a life of greed. God hates the hypocrisy of the person who acts like a hero on Sunday, who loves people saying, isn't he or she a great encouragement, but at home is cold and hard-hearted. And I don't think it's a coincidence that hypocrisy and money often go together in the Bible. Because as I said before, how we use our money is perhaps the clearest snapshot of the reality of our heart. But remember, if we are in danger of being that hypocrite, the answer is not to run away from God. The answer is to turn back to Jesus. God's grace is sufficient even for our hypocrisy. Can I implore you, if you have hidden sin in your life, if you have hidden sin, confess it to God. Ask for His help. Deal with it. You can hide things from me, you can hide things from Josh, you can hide things even from the people closest to you, not from God. And that is what Ananias and Sapphira forgot. So, this story is here to point to, point to show us that the seriousness of sin and related, it's here I think, secondly, to show us what God desires for His church, which is holiness. The church is useless if we are not holy. I hope we've seen this in our studies in the Sermon on the Mount, in our Gospel teams. We all got up to, to chapter 5, the beginning, where it talks about being salt and light. Has everyone got up to there in our Gospel team studies? Remember how Jesus calls us to be distinct. He said, if you lose your saltiness, what are you good for? Nothing, other than to be thrown and trampled underfoot. Be a light on a hill, Jesus says. Shine in our world, and it is our holiness that's meant to stand out. If we are going to be effective in reaching the world for Christ, our holiness matters. This is why both Jesus and Paul in the New Testament both teach about the importance of church discipline. The the New Testament is clear, we have to care about sin. We, We need to love one another enough to challenge each other and sometimes rebuke each other, always with grace, always with gentleness, always very aware of the potential log in our own eye but we need to love one another enough to have those hard conversations. That idea of church discipline is a very hard topic, I know, and if you want to think some more about it, I did a seminar for uh, more college a few months ago, uh, and I'm sure you can find it online. But God was showing right from the start of His church here, sin is serious and it needs to be dealt with. But as we close, I want to come back to the positive picture that we started with. What happens when people come to know Jesus? What happens when people are gripped by the gospel? Well, we become devoted to the fellowship. That's what happens. And it gives us a unity of heart and of mind and a spirit of generosity that is just such a wonderful thing to see and such an incredible witness to our world. So that's what I pray people see when they look in at our church. I pray that the people around here think about our church and they would say of us, Now the large group of those who believed at St George North, at Bexley North, were of one heart and one mind and no one said that any of his possessions were his own. Wouldn't that be wonderful? That's what people saw in us and what people said about us.
Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the incredible generosity we have received from you in our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you did not even spare your son, but sent him to pay the price for our sin. And so, Father, we pray that we would be a people of generosity. We pray that we would walk in the footsteps of Barnabas, the son of encouragement, rather than in the footsteps of Ananias and Sapphira. And Father, forgive us for our hypocrisy. Forgive us for the times where we put on a show of righteousness when the reality of our hearts is far distant. And Father, we pray that we would be people who confess our sin, who own it, turn to you with it, seek your forgiveness in Christ and then seek to put it off and live for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.